Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You guys are still here. I thought for certain I'd have ran you off last week, Um, but you guys are still here, so thank you. Thank you, and welcome to Redemption. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Titus. We're in Titus chapter 2. Um, we got a lot of Bible today. We got a lot of stuff we got to set up. We're going to do the whole chapter two. So with that being said, let's pray, um, and then we will get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for every single person in this room. Thank you for the gift that they are and for the callings that you have given them. Thank you for the roles and responsibilities that each of us play in your church. Lord, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us, to redeem us, and to give us restoration and reconciliation in our relationships. Father, I pray for the old men in this room, that they would be godly and steadfast and lead in their church. I pray for the elderly women, the older women, that they would be strong and they would teach what is according to the gospel. I pray for the young women, that they would know who they are so they know what to do. Lord, we pray for the young men, that they would lead, that they would lead in their lives and in their work and in everything that you have called them to do. Lord, I pray that as you teach us through Titus's message to his church, Lord, that it would be a message to our church for how we are to live for the glory of God and for the good of others. So Holy Spirit, empower me to, to teach your words and then to set this in our hearts for the rest of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we got a lot of, uh, we got a lot of work to do to be able to get into this text today. So I, I got to set it up with some theology, and I know what you're thinking. It's Sunday morning, it's early, theology, right? But you guys are redemption, and you love theology, amen? Yeah. Amen. So we got to unpack this for us theologically, because what's going to happen is if we come to this subject, or if we come to this topic or text with our 21st century understandings or our, our cultural lenses on, then we're going to miss it. And so we, we need to interpret this text theologically. And what I always tell you guys is that we don't interpret um, the scriptures by our surroundings, but rather what we do is we interpret our surroundings because of the scripture. So that's, that's very important. Think about it like this. Say you walk into a movie and it's about halfway over, right? You see two people making love, you see them making out, and you think, oh, this must be a love story. So you watch a couple of scenes later and then you realize... This is actually an adulterous affair, right? It really changes the dynamics of the relationship. So what do you got to do? You got to go back to the very beginning. You got to see how the story unfolds to get to the conflict resolution at the end. And it's the same way for us when we, when we read our scriptures, that everything is a continual story about the life of Jesus. And so this is the reason why we don't just pick and choose verses out of context, you know, say, here's a verse, I think this is what it means, here's my opinion. No, we read the Bible within the context of the original hearers, so that way we can apply it to our lives. So we, we don't read the, the scriptures based on our surroundings, but rather we see our surroundings and we interpret them because of the scripture. So then how do we interpret scripture? With scripture. That the Bible teaches us what the Bible says. It's one continual story about God's redeeming work. And so throughout the Bible, it's true, it's inerrant, and there is no contradictions. So when we read the Bible, we see what God intends for our lives. And so that's, that's very important. It's important for us to remember this because Paul is going to be teaching us something that, that, that is of increasing importance for us as 21st century people. 
and he's going to be connecting some dots for us theologically to where if we're not paying attention to the, to the storyline, then we're going to miss it. So we got we to gotta unpack this for you. And so I got to take you back to the very beginning. Actually, we need to go back to before the beginning, before the beginning was even begun, to God himself. That the God of the Bible exists outside of all of creation, perfectly satisfied within himself. That we know this as the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, this is the nature of God. Our God is Trinity. So that means there's, there's one God and three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, there's not three gods, there's not three people, there's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And within the very nature of God, there is equality, there is submission, and there is glory. I want you to hold on to those three words, equality, submission, and glory. Those words are very important. I got a verse for you. This is Jesus' teaching out of John 15 over the nature of God and the Trinity. He says, but when the helper comes, that word's important, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Hey, here's what we see, that, that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son that they are equal in their relationships, yet they differ in their roles and responsibilities. So they are co-equal. They're equal in glory, in dignity, but they also submit to one another. And as they submit, the Father sins, Trinitarian language, sends the Son. The Son lives and dies for our sins, and then he sends the Spirit, the helper, to enable us, to empower us, to live our new lives. And so this is how the Trinity works. We know this as mutual submission or the complementarian nature of God, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are equal in their relationships, yet they differ in their roles and responsibilities. So now we're going to move from, from the nature of God into the nature of man. So this God, the God of the Bible, the God we worship, created everything it is that we see. Everything we see is made by God. He made the sun, he made the stars, he made the trees, he made the plants, he made the animals, right? Everything was created for his glory. But there was something missing. That there was something missing. There was something that, that, that didn't serve as a mirror for his glory in the world. And so that's why he made man. He made man to mirror his glory and goodness to the rest of this world. And when he made man, he made us in the very image and likeness of God. Okay, this is the difference between men and, say, dogs. This is the difference between you and, say, dogs. I know you love dogs. I know they're fluffy. I know they're furry. I know they're your best friends, but they don't bear the image and likeness of God. Okay, so some of you guys, you're hairy, like you're fluffy, right? Still different than a dog. Okay, you bear the image and likeness of God. And so God made you, but there was still something missing. He said it's not good for man to be alone. And so for this woman, he, for this reason, rather, he created woman. And he placed Adam and Eve, married them together, placed them in the garden, and they created both in the image of God. Whose image was woman made after? God's. That they were both in the image and likeness of God. He placed them in the garden to work, to serve, and to care for all of creation. And this is God's intended and natural design for us. Adam as the worker, Eve as the helper, God's glory, God's goodness on display through us working together. That Adam and Eve both had equal relationship with God, yet they differed in their roles and responsibilities. So this is where I'm going to get some pushback. Did you just say that woman was the helper? 
Yes. So wait, what? How can you say that? Isn't that denigrating? Doesn't that de- demean or demoralize women? Not at all. Because if you notice this, that God ascribes so much value and worth and dignity on the, the role of a woman that he ascribes the same word for her as he does the Holy Spirit. Helper. Helper. That's not diminishing. That's not demeaning. That's beautiful. That, that woman and the Holy Spirit are the helpers to enable us to live these good and godly lives. See, God has created us in such a way, designed us to work together for the glory of God and for the good of this world, that we have equal roles and relationships, yet we do differ in our responsibilities. So where did this come from? Where did this come from to to think the way that we do? And this comes from us thinking and trading Equality for sameness. Equality for sameness. And this is where it comes from. And this is why the world that we live in is the way that it is. And it's one word, sin. And this one word created all the problems in this world. So I got a verse for you. Here's what it says in Genesis 3. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And so Satan came to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, and he deceived them. He said, if you eat this, you will be like God. What's the lie here? They were already like God. They were already like God. They already shared in the image of of God. They already shared in the very likeness of God. They were already equal, but he got them to trade their equality for sameness. And they sinned, and they fell, and they separated themselves from God, and we've been living under this ever since. That now we live under a curse of sin, and of shame, and of separation. And so what we see is that God's good design, the way that God has created us to work for this glory, has been broken, has been fractured, that relationships have been strained, that it's backbreaking, it's laborious, and this is the life we call life. So does God leave us under the nature of sin? Does God leave us broken and fractured? No. What does he do? He sends Jesus. He sends Jesus Trinitarian language, God sends Jesus to live the perfect life, the life that we should have in that garden, to die the painful death in our place, deserving of the curse. And in a great reversal, Jesus becomes the curse in our place, gives us grace, mercy, redemption, salvation, and renewal. And that Jesus doesn't just save us and leave us, but he also gives us the Holy Spirit, the helper, the advocate to point us to truth, to empower us, to enable us to live this new life with this new nature, with this new identity in this new community. That God doesn't leave us under the curse. In the great reversal, Jesus becomes the curse on our, in our behalf. And so what is this? The big idea here is this, is that just as God is Trinity, that he exists within himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal in dignity and glory, that God also differs in his roles and relationships. Me and Ashley, you and I, male and female, we are created equal, equal, equally loved, equally saved, equally made new. But we differ in our roles and responsibilities. 
And so where the world would say we have to compete with one another, when others would say that we need someone to complete one another, the way God has designed us to work together is to complement each other for his glory and the goodness of all of our lives. And so what does this mean for us as a church? What does this mean for us as God's people called together for God's purpose? It means that our lives, the way we live, should be a throwback to the garden and a preview of heaven. That the way we worship, the way we work together, the way we serve together, the way we love one another, the way that we live our everyday life should be a throwback to the garden and a preview of heaven. And so Paul is addressing this within the church of Crete. He knows that there is chaos. He knows that there is confusion. He knows that there is contention and the created order of the church is out of balance. And so he writes to Titus and says, hey, I want you to speak to the people in your church and encourage them with who they are and challenge them to be and to live in the way that God has created them. And so I want you to know that we still face the same problems the church in Crete faced, okay? Like, people don't change that much over time, okay? We still face some of these, these same problems even here in downtown Beaumont. And people say, Byron, redemption's such a diverse church. And what they're really meaning is you're all a bunch of Cretans. That's what they mean. And it's true, and I love you, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Because God is doing a good work in our church. Amen? God is doing a good work in our church. So what does this look like for us here at Redemption? To work towards God's vision of equality and community. Not just some 21st century understanding, not some cultural mindset of what equality and community should look like, but what is God's intended design? What is God's vision for us, eternal and timeless and true? Great question. I'm glad that you asked. Paul's going to address us on on different levels, and each one of these are going to hit every single person in this room, Uh, and so he's going to talk to us as men, as women, and as workers, okay? And so he's going to talk to the, to the older generation first. And so here at Redemption, uh, if you're over 40, you're old. I, I love you, but that's just how it works. I, I'm sorry. I love you, but that's just, that's just how it works. So I'm going to talk to the older, to the older guys first, and then we're going to move down into um, to the, to the younger generation. I love you guys. So <laughs> speak loud. So I, for you older men, I'm going to talk loud. So, to the older men first, here's what he says. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Okay, so for you older men, I want you to know this. You are valuable. You are valued, and you are valuable. Growing up, I, I never had a dad, but, but I did have a grandfather, And my grandfather taught me what it means to work hard, to pray hard, to love my wife, to love my family, to provide, to embrace difficulty and shoulder responsibility. So to you older men, I want you to know that you are valued. We live in the middle of a fatherless epidemic. 40% of children are going to go to bed tonight without a dad. And so that means for some of these younger guys in the room, you might be the closest thing to a father that they ever get. My, my life was changed forever because a handful of older men saw something in me that I didn't see in myself and that they took the time to invest in me, to model, to mentor, to disciple me, to show me what it means to live for a lifetime. I was a young punk kid. I definitely didn't deserve it. 
But these older men took the time to disciple me in my faith. And so on behalf of the younger men in your life, on behalf of the younger men in this church, I want to I look at you and I want to repent for ever making you feel unappreciated or disrespected. I'm sorry. I have seen firsthand the sacrifices that you have made, the sacrifices that you have made for your family, the sacrifices that you have made for your children, for your work, the sacrifices for the church, for the sake of the gospel, and for the city. Older men, I want you to know that you have the greatest opportunity for ministry and mission in this church. These young men in this room, we need you. We need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need you in this church to show us how to leave a legacy in this city. To the older men, we need you. And I need you to know that if there's breath in your lungs, God's not done with you. That as long as there's breath in your lungs, there is a war to be won. And we need you to find your fight again. We need you to get off the bench and get back in the game. Put your boots back on. We need you to get on mission again. We need you to find your fight. We need you to fight for this church, to fight for this city, to fight for your family, to fight for the younger generations. We need you to fight for the gospel. We need you to find your fight again. We need you to be sober, steadfast, sound in speech, self-controlled, and we need you to lead. And we need you to lead in love. To the older men, be encouraged. There's great hope in this church. Now Paul's going to speak to the, to the older women in the church. And this is what he says. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders to, or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women. To the older ladies in the church, I love you. I love you. Every time, every, y'all are the ones shouting me down when I'm preaching. Thank you so much for that. I hear your amens. I hear you clapping. It's the older women in the church who are the most passionate and excited about what Jesus is doing. Ask one of the older ladies and said, hey, why do you come to redemption? She said, because my grandchildren want to be here. And any church that can reach my grandchildren is a church for me. I love the older women in our church. And, and they encourage me when I'm preaching. You help me make it through sermons like this. So thank you. Uh, because when I step off the stage, you know who the first person to greet me is? The devil. He gets in my head. He says, you shouldn't have said that. You, you should have done this. You're going to get an email. People are going to leave. The next five people in line are the older women in our church. And they crush the head of the serpent every single week. Thank you so much for your encouragement and for your prayers. The older women, I love you. And I don't know if you know this, but scripture flies in the face of culture. Right? In our day and age, is age seen as a sign of beauty? It's not. Sadly, it's not. Marketers and advertisers spend millions of dollars every single day to make older women feel unattractive and insecure because of their age. Also, um, they, they sell wrinkle cream, hair dye, makeup, just to make you feel unattractive and make you question your identity, whether or not you belong, and to make you feel insecure because of your age. Also, older women in the workplace are some of the most discriminated people in America. They're passed over for jobs. They make significantly less money than men, especially women of color. And it's a shame that they are taken advantage of personally, financially, relationally, all because of their age. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says you belong. More than belong. The Bible says you have a critical role to play in this church. 
And that scripture says that actually the older you get, the more beautiful you are. And the older you get, the more glory you can give to God because the more grace and dignity he gives to you. In the book of Proverbs, it says gray hair is a crown of wisdom. So I say, if you got it, flaunt it. Because you've earned it. You've earned it. With your wisdom, with your stories, with your life, with the way in which you live, you have earned every single bit to stand for the glory of God. To the older women, you belong. Paul's word to the older women in the church is to teach. To teach. We need you to teach us. We need you to teach us what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to pray, what it means to live for a lifetime of glory. To the older women, we need you to teach. We need you to train. We need you to tell your stories. Do we have women in our church who teach? Yes. We have two older women in our church that have taken it upon themselves to invest in the next generation of women in our church. This is why we have a growing prayer ministry on Sunday mornings, and this is why we have Redemption Women that meets every month to be able to equip, to empower, to encourage young women to pursue Christ-centered purposes and find their identity. I love seeing the older women in our church take the place that God has created you for. Thank you. Thank you to the older women. Recently, I was interviewed by the newspaper about what does redemption do to reach so many young people, right? And I thought it was funny that the newspaper would write an article about millennials, considering they don't read the newspaper. But she said, well, what do you do, Byron, at Redemption to, to reach so many young people? And I said, nothing. We don't do anything to reach young people. N- nothing. We don't do anything special. Nothing. Here, we actually do things backwards. This is what I told her. I said, we do two things. We tell them to serve. So that means you got to get up at like 7 a.m., 7 a.m., I don't know if you know that exists, but it does. 7 a.m., to show up at the, eight, the church by 8, to unload a trailer, to set up all of these chairs, to set up the cafe, to set up kids, to set up the music. So show up at 8, break a sweat before church ever begins. And then we put you upstairs, and then we teach you how to pray, and to pray for our church, to pray for our gatherings, to pray for our city. And we also teach you to, to give. This is what it means to tithe. This is what it means to serve. This is what it means to be a part of God's church. So we just tell you to serve, and then we tell you to join a group with older people in our church. To join a group with the older people in our church. And she looked at me funny. She's like, "Ah, really? I said, yeah. She said, well, what's frustrating about reaching millennials? I said, millennials. That's what's frustrating about reaching them. No, I said, said, we need older people in our church. We need older people. Do you know any? Can you send them here? Right, grab your grandma, bring her here. We need the older people in our church. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but me, I'm young. I'm young, and so I need older people in my life to teach me wisdom and guidance to help me point me towards the truth and what it means to grow as a pastor and to grow as a father and to grow as a leader. I need older people. I have a pastor. I have a pastor, and guess what? He's older than me, and so I don't buy into this age-segregated ministry stuff, okay? I don't buy into it because the last thing that you younger folks need is to be around other 20-year-olds doing the same dumb 20-year-old stuff you're doing. What you need to do is you need to be around oldly, older, godly people. Find spiritual mothers and fathers who can teach you what it means to follow Jesus, to teach you how to pay your bills and, and how to you know, find a husband and wife and love your kids. You need to be around someone who can teach you how to pray and teach you how to read your Bible and teach you how to leave a legacy. 
you need to be around the older people in our church. And so to the older generation, I want you to know, you have the best opportunity for mission in this church. You have the best opportunity for ministry here at Redemption. You belong and we need you to lead us. And so next Paul moves on and he begins to talk addressing the younger women in the church. And this is what he says to the younger women. He says, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Okay, younger ladies, you have been lied to. You've been lied to about what it means for you to be a woman. Social media, marketers, magazines, they have put pressure on you in ways that God never intended. They have put expectations on you and that God has never designed. And so we have been lied to. And the lie is not a new lie. The lie goes all the way back to the garden itself. And that lie is who you are. That lie is your identity. That lie is your worth and your value. And so I think this, this issue around your identity is the reason why so many popular Christian authors and women blogs and articles center around the issue of a woman's identity. And we have so many young ladies in our church who don't know their value. They don't know their worth. They don't know whether or not they belong or, or where they can, can, can be at in their life because they don't know who they are. That if we know our identity, then we'll know our destiny. But so many women don't know who they are. And so they don't know what it is that they're to do with life. And that's heartbreaking. So women, I, I want to do the best that I can. Okay? I want to do the best that I can to help you. All you need to do to be a woman is nothing. Because that's how God made you. That's how God has created you. You share in dignity and equality and the very image and likeness of God. That all you have to do to be the way God created you is just to live for him, however it is that you were made. And trust that he will lead you and he will grow you and that your identity first and foremost comes as a daughter, a daughter of God and a sister in this church. That is your identity, who you are, how God made you. And when you know who you are, then you'll know how to live. And so Paul then gives us some gospel instructions for, for the young women in the church. And this is what he says. First, he says that the young women are to love their husbands. I find it interesting that this is the only text, the only verse in all of the Bible that says, women, love your husbands. The only verse. From what I counted, there's 52 times the Bible says, men, love your wives. Men, love your wives. Men, love your wives. Right? You know why men have to be reminded? Because we're dumb. <laughs> And we'll forget. And so 52 times, like that's one for every single week, right? Men, love your wives, okay? Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, anniversary, birthday, Christmas, love your wife. Women, you only got to be told one time. And you're like, oh, I got it. I got it. It's great. And what's interesting is the context here is in learning, learning to love. See, we live in a day to where love is a feeling, that you fall in love, you fall out of love, you feel love, you don't feel love. But love, if love is just a feeling, then that means love is fleeting. But love is more than a feeling. Sometimes love is what we choose to do. And I love this context of learning because Ashley has learned to love me over 11 years. Why? 
because I frustrate her. And there's some times where she just, she's like, God, choose to love today. And God bless her for that. And so for the ladies, love, love your husbands. The second thing he tells us to do is for the young women to love their children. Okay? There's nothing more natural and beautiful than to see a mother's love for their child. To see Ashley and Esther wake up in the morning is one of the greatest parts of my, my day. The way that they wake up and the way when Ashley feeds her and they look at each other and Ashley smiles and Esther makes these little noises. It's the, it's the most beautiful thing to see the way that a mother can nurture and love and provide for her children. Ashley has a way with our little girl that I just don't have. Now, it's not that, it's not that me and Esther don't have our daddy-daughter moments, because we absolutely do, but there's just a bond. There's just something beautiful. They have this moment, and Ashley just comes alive when she's loving for our little girl. And so, moms, the, the best way that you can love your children is to teach them who Jesus is. That's the best way that you can love your children, to teach them how to pray and to read their Bibles, even at a young age. We would read uh, the Bible to, to Esther when she was still in Ashley's womb, and we'd sing and we'd pray. And so you can teach your children to love Jesus, even at a very young age, because your children are going to look at you and see what it means to be a Christian. And this is one of the reasons why we do family worship here at Redemption, right? There, you know, we got babies in the room, and I love it. There's life in the room. That's amazing. And so I love that. And this is why we do family worship, because we want your, your children to see, oh, that's my mom worshiping Jesus. I want to be like that. To see, to see your sons look to your husbands and say, that's what it means to follow Jesus. I want to be like my dad. I want to be like my mom. That's the reason why we do family worship, because children learn to love by watching their parents. And so also, this goes for your husband as well, right? It's okay to kiss your, children, to kiss your husband before your kids, Okay. Like when I come home, Ashley gets the first kiss, and then I kiss Esther. And it's okay to gross out your kids. Do it. Gross them out. Give them a kiss right now. Give them a kiss. Let me see it. Good, good. Because your kids are going to learn what a good husband, what a good wife, what a good mother, what a good father is by watching you. And so love your husbands. Love your children. Love your children. The next thing he tells us to do is to be self-controlled. Ladies, you are the most self-controlled people I've ever met. Thank you for that. Thank you. I don't know how you do it between work, between college, between husbands and children. How you remain so self-controlled, I don't know. But I thank you for that because I am a recipient of your grace. So thank you so much. Next he says to be pure. The same word here is that of priestess, that your life is to be holy and upright and reverent before the world around us and even within the church, that you're to be pure and reverent. What I think is amazing is that, that Paul gives the same Godly qualifications to a woman as he expects out of a man. To be godly, to be pure, to be holy, and to be upright. Then next he goes in and he says, for the young women to be working at home. Now, we could get in a lot of trouble with this if I didn't do all the theological setup at the beginning if I didn't do all the setup to show the way in which God has created us to work together. Now, is Paul putting a prohibition on women working? No, that's not what he's saying. Is Paul saying women can't have careers and that their place is in the home? No, that's not what Paul's saying. That, that God has designed us in a way to complement one another, that Adam and Eve worked in the garden. And so today, if you want to get a job, get a job. If you want to have a career, 
get a career. If you don't and you want to stay in with the kids, do that. That's awesome. It's fine. It's whatever. Here's what Paul is saying, is that family comes first. Is that your family is your greatest ministry. And I know sometimes it's hard. I know sometimes it's frustrating. But the hardest mission field is always the home. But it's also the most fruitful. One man says it like this. Whoever owns the family owns the future. Ladies, the future is in your hands. Family comes first. Home is the greatest ministry that we have. So nurture that. Care for that. Provide for that. The future is in your hands. Then he goes on and he says, submissive to their husbands. Okay, is submission a bad thing? No. Because we see even within the nature of the Trinity, God submits. Submission's not a bad thing. Submission is actually a beautiful thing, and here's why. It's a reversal of the curse in Genesis. It shows that there is something different about the way that we love. It's a reversal of the curse in Genesis. And so submission's not a bad thing. Submission is a beautiful thing. And one of the the reasons why we struggle with this is because men haven't treated women the way they should. That we've sought to rule over them, still living under the curse, rather than loving and cherishing and providing and protecting and serving and living for the women in our life. See, ladies, God instituted marriage as a covenant relationship, a covenant between men and women to show the glory of God and produce holiness in your life and for you to produce holiness in the life of the man that you choose to marry. This is why God created marriage. But it's not just a covenant relationship. It's also a prophetic reminder. It's a prophetic reminder for us the way that Jesus loves his church, the way that Jesus loves his church, the way that Jesus cherishes his church, the way that Jesus dies for his church, the way that Jesus serves his church, the way that Jesus gives everything he has to his church. In the same way that the church submits to Jesus, his leadership, his authority, is the same way that our marriages should be, that the wife would submit to the, to the husband and that the husband would die for the wife. This is what marriage should be like. It's holiness in the life of God's people. So this is the way that God has designed us to operate from the garden even here in the church. So what does this mean for the single ladies in the church? Okay, so I know there's a lot of single women in the church, and most of these had to deal with the married women. So what does this mean for you single ladies? Do all women need to submit to all men? No. No. That's chauvinistic, that's repulsive, has no place in the church. It has no place in God's kingdom. All women don't have to submit to all men. For you single ladies... The authority in your life is God the Father, and then you are belong in the church as a sister. Your identity is as daughter and sister before anything else. Before anything else. So no, women don't have to submit to all men. That's chauvinistic and that's repulsive. So what does this mean for you who are dating? You're dating someone, you're looking to get married, and you're dating someone who is uh, manipulative or abusive or is domineering, or is making sexual advances towards you, is complaining. What, is that, what does this mean for, for you, single ladies? Here's what it means. Dump them. Get out now. Do it. Because here's the deal. When you're dating a guy, he's on his best behavior. And if, if he's acting like this now, he will not respect you then. And, and you won't have the opportunity nor the ability to submit 
in that relationship because you don't respect him. If he's not loving you like Jesus loves you, if he's not living and dying and giving his life to, to lead and to serve, it's done. Just, just text him right now. Just pull out your phone. It's okay. You can text in church for this specific reason. All right. Because, because, because if it's the way it is now, it's, it's not going to get better. And I know y'all yelling at you think, I, I can change him. No, Jesus can change him. So let him just work with Jesus. Okay? And, and you will be better for it. So you don't have to submit to all men. I want you to know that your identity, first and foremost, is as a daughter and as a sister. Okay? Now, statistically, 92% of you young ladies will get married. So you can just take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. But before you grow into a family, I want you to grow with the Father. I want you to grow in your faith before you grow in your family. Okay? And so, women, I want you to know, you don't have to compete with men. You don't have to do it. And no man will ever complete you because you are already made in the image of God with full equality and dignity and worth and value, okay? And so we, we don't compete with one another, we don't complete one another, but we do complement each other. And you have a special place in the church. You do, you belong. So next he goes in, and he starts talking to the young men. And this is what he says to the young men. He says, likewise, all right, this is a connecting word. He's connecting everything that he's laid on the other roles and responsibilities on the young men. He's connecting all of this to the lives of the young men. He says, urge the younger men. Now remember, Titus is bold, Titus is brave, Titus is courageous. And what Titus did with these young men single-handedly changed the church and the world forever. So he's saying, Titus, I need you to talk to the young men. And I want you to talk to them like men. So this is what he says. Urge the young men to be self-controlled, to show themselves in respect, to be a model of good works, in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be, may be put to shame and have nothing evil to say about us. So young men, there is a massive problem in our day, and it's the young men. There is a massive problem in the church, in culture, in this country, and that problem is young men. Statistically, the church is predominantly women. 61% of the church is made up of, of women. And so while we're excited that the ladies love Jesus, my question is, where are all the young men? The least likely person to attend church is a male in their 20s. Do you know where a male in their 20s would rather be on Sunday mornings? Sleeping. They're sleeping. And so where are the young men? Where are they at? In Paul's day, what I find interesting here is that he never tells us when someone goes from being a boy to a man. He doesn't say it in the text. He just says young men. So when does someone go from being a boy to a man? Is it when he's 16 and he can drive? Is it when you're 18 and you could buy cigarettes and gamble? Is it 21 you can drink? When does a young man become a young man? In America, we don't know because we don't have any mile markers for our manhood. And so, so we don't know. In Paul's day, there was two life stages. Okay, there's two. Boy, man. That's it. You could... Be a man at 16, 18 years old. You could have a house, you could have a wife, you could have kids, you could have a career at 16, 18 years old. Some of you are like, well, that's a little young. Yeah, but 30 is a little late. And so what does it mean for us? Right? Because today we don't have two life stages, we have three. Okay? There's boy, there's man, and in the middle is a new life stage called adolescence. And adolescence can last for an indefinite period of time. 
It starts when you're 16. It can go on forever. Right? You could have a midlife crisis before you ever actually get a life. And so this is extended boyhood, and it needs to stop. Men, young men, you have been lied to. You've been lied to about what it means for you to be a man. You've been told that to be a man means to drink the most beers, to shoot the most guns, to buy the latest technological advances, to have the biggest TV, to drive the fastest car, the biggest truck, to sleep with the most women. That's not what it means to be a man. That's not what it means. And big business knows this. They know that you're boys with disposable incomes. You don't know how to steward. You don't know how to save nor invest. So you're going to spend all of your money buying the products that they sell you. So every single, every single ad has a woman on it. And, and they want you to buy this because this will make you a man. It has a woman. It has a watch. It has a beer. It has some guy who's way more attractive than you in every single way saying that if you buy this, be like this, do this, then this is what it means for you to be a man. And it's a lie. They're not actually making you men. One pastor says it like this. They're making you boys who shave. And so they're, they're saying, do this and you'll be like a man. Because they know, they know that, that you will do it. And so you think it's a man based on what you take and not what you give. It's based on what you consume rather than what you contribute. It's what products you buy rather than what you can actually produce. See, what used to happen is young men would graduate, they'd get a job, they'd get a wife, and she'd drag them back to church by the time they're 30. But that's not happening anymore today. And the reason being is that boys are not becoming men. And this perverted sense of masculinity is damaging not just the church, but it's damaging children and women. As children are being raised without parents in the home, and as women are being demeaned, demoralized, and abused by the hands of young men. One out of six women will be raped or molested in their life by young men. One out of four women will be sexually harassed at work by young men. The whole creative order is out of balance because young men are out being boys and making a mess instead of being in church, being a man and making a difference. And it needs to stop. And it needs to stop. It's not based on how tough you are. Do you know what it means to be a man? Self-control. It's not based on how tough you are, how many beers you can drink, how many women you can sleep with. What it means to be a man is how much responsibility you can carry. That's what it means for us to be men. And so what I want to do is I want to read this again. And I want you to consider, young men, the testimony of your lives. Are you the young man that God has created you to be? Do you share the glory of God as God has designed, created you, or have you traded it for something else? I want to read this again for the young men. This is a challenge for us. The culture of this church is changing, and we need the young men to be the glory of God that he's created them. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to ask, does your life fit this standard of godliness? He says, self-controlled. Are you self-controlled? Keep your thoughts to yourself. Keep your hands to yourself. Do you just go around doing what you want, when you want, with whomever you want? Or do you practice self-control? Next, he says, in all respects, are you respectable? You say you want respect. 
Do you live a life worthy of respect? He says, a model of good works. Are you known by what you give rather than what you take? What you contribute rather than what you consume? Are you known by what you can produce and not what you buy? Are you a model of good works to the young children and the other young men in this church? He says, in your teaching, I want you to know you are teaching. You're teaching something. You're teaching someone. People are watching. You're teaching with your life, either what it means to follow Jesus or what it means to run away. You're teaching. All of your life is spent teaching. He says, integrity. Do you mean what you say? Do you do what you say? Is your word your bond? Are you an integrous person? He goes and says, dignity. Are we dignified? Are we growing in godliness, maturing in our faith? And he says, in sound and speech, do you make jokes about women? Do you laugh about them? Do you talk about them? Are you sound in speech? Do your words produce gospel fruit in the lives of those around you? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of, oh, so that they may, an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Young men, this is where we're at as a church. We're moving into a new season. And God is challenging us to change our lives. So I've been soft, but soft words make soft people. So this is a challenge for us as a church. The burden of responsibility has been laid at your feet. So here's what I want us to do. For the young men, I want you to find one of the godly older men in this room. And I want you to repent. And I want you to ask him to invest in your life. I want you to join a group, to be around other people, to live life together, pursuing after godliness. I want you to serve. I want you to serve in the church. Show up at 8 a.m., unload the trailers, unload the chairs, set all this up so more people can have an opportunity. I want you to give. I want you to give. To be known by what you give and not what you take. Where we're at as a church is that the church will not grow unless the young men grow up. So this is, this is a challenge for you as young men because you are the glory of God. You are. And I wouldn't expect it of you if I didn't think it was possible. And God wouldn't expect it of you if he didn't create you to be that way. The future of the church depends on you. Titus got the young men and because of that, we're still here today. And so Paul then moves into the workers. All of this fits in every area of our life, men, women, and workers. And so let's take a look at the word that Paul gives to the workers. This is what he says. He says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, or showing good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, the word here says slaves. Some of your translations will say bondservants. So slavery existed in the Roman Empire, and slavery is disgusting and deplorable. The Bible outright addresses the issue of slavery. In 1 Timothy, it says slave trading is sin. So when we hear the word slave, we automatically import our you know, transatlantic colonialism, American understanding of slavery into the word. And slavery did exist 
but that's not necessarily what this is talking about. I would love to do a teaching on slavery. I don't have the time today. So if enough of you ask me, hey, Byron, could you do a blog or do a video teaching on what the Bible says about slavery and racism? I would love to do that. Uh, But today we don't have enough time. What Paul's addressing here is the issue of people who have exchanged their work for wages. People have exchanged their labor for debt. And he's saying, is there a way for us to live our lives for the glory of God in the way that we work? Okay, so some of you, um, you, you feel literally, figuratively, that your work is slavery. Right? You feel tied to the desk. You feel tied to your job. You feel chained to, to your employment. You can't stand your coworkers. Your boss treats you like garbage. And it feels like you wake up and you drive to hell every single day only to do it all over again, right? You feel like that? And some of you, you love your job. The rest of us hate you. So um, <laughs> just kidding. That's the way that it should be. See, God created us to work. Adam and Eve were designed to work. God created us to work. It's only after the fall that work became work. And so 30% of your life will be spent at work. Did you know that? 30% of your life will be spent at work in a, in a cubicle, in an office, in a plant, at waiting tables, wherever. So what this means is that God cares about your job. He cares about your job. All of your job, God cares about every aspect of your life. And so how do we work in a way that brings glory to God? By recognizing that work is worship. That work is worship, and that work is your greatest opportunity for witness. So you know, I don't have the most important job in this church. You do. I can't go to your job and tell them about Jesus. I can't go to your job and start a prayer meeting. I can't go to your job and share the gospel. I can't go to your job and encourage other people. But you know who can? You. So work, if we view it as worship, is our way to change the world. That our work, what we do, what we produce, is our way to change the world if we see it as worship and as witness. That's Paul's word to the worker. And so ultimately, what all this produces is how the gospel flourishes in our life. How the gospel brings good news to those we live around and brings glory to the lives in which we live. So this is Paul's final words. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. How many people? All people. Is it for the men or for the women? All. Is it for the old or for the young? All. Is it for the rich or for the poor? All. Is it for black, white, Latino? All people. It's for all people where the world has sought to separate us. The grace of God has saved us. Where the world has sought to make us compete with one another. Now we complement each other's lives for the glory of God and for the good of others. It is for all people. This is called grace. That God gives it to us freely, not based on our gifts, not based on our efforts, not based on our gender nor our race, but it's all because of the grace of God. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. He gives it freely. So how then shall we live because of this grace? Paul says, training to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, a people of his own possessions who are zealous for good works. And what Paul is hammering out here is how the gospel changes the way we live how the gospel changes who we are and how we live. He's taking us back, like in the movie, to the very beginning, and then he's showing us the end, from creation to consumption, 
all of our lives are to be lived for the glory of God. In the garden, we were created in the image and likeness of God. We were created to bring glory, to serve as the mirror for his good works around the world. But through sin and through foolishness and through rebellion, we separated ourselves from God. We shattered that image of God. And now we live under the curse of sin, of broken relationships. But Jesus doesn't leave us under the curse. That Jesus comes, lives, dies the life we should have lived in the garden, dies the painful death we deserve because of the curse. And in the great reversal, Jesus becomes the cure for the curse, and he gives us redemption and restoration and renewal. And see, where, where, where sin reigned, now Jesus reigned. Where relationships were broken, now they are made beautiful. Where people were at odds, now we live for the glory of God awaiting the blessed hope of our Lord and Savior Jesus when he will return on that day, one day, and we will see him face to face. He will give us a new body with a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. But you don't have to wait till you see Jesus to meet Jesus because eternity starts now. That your life can, can change fundamentally forever today because the Holy Spirit, the helper, the advocate of God empowers you to live a new godly life. You have the deposit of heaven in you right now. And so you can live with new nature, live with new identities, and you can live in this new community. This new community God calls the church. We are the visible manifestation, representation of the kingdom of God in this city. And so we are to live as a throwback to the garden, but a preview of heaven. That when people see us, they should see Jesus. That the way we operate, the way we work, the way we love, the way we worship, the way we raise our kids, the way we love our husbands and wives, the way that we give should fundamentally be different than the way in which this world works. So that when people see us, they see the hope of glory. Because at the core of who we are, we are a people who have been renewed, and we've been changed, and we've been given a new life with him forever, and in that we are to work together for God's glory and the good of others. My challenge for you comes out of 15, and it says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. I know today was tough for some. It was difficult. And I know that for others, it brought great hope and joy. And I want to encourage and challenge you to wrestle with that tension. That we as a church need to wrestle with the tension of what it means to live godly lives for the glory of God. For some, it was difficult. For some, it was joyful. And I encourage us as a church to ask questions and to wrestle with this tension. I wrestled with this all week long before we preached, and this last verse brought me great hope. Declare these things and let no one disregard you. I know that in our day and age, talking about things like work and gender and our identities is not a very popular thing to talk about, but it's important for us to know how we live. And while we live in a time of confusion, contention, and chaos, I want to encourage you that it's always been this way. From the garden to Crete and even for us here at Redemption. But where there is confusion and chaos, the gospel brings clarity. So I challenge you to read your Bible. The more you read, the more you study, the more you pray, the more you live in community, 
the more clear God's purpose for your life becomes. And so for you men, my, my word for you is this. Declare these things. And for you women, let no one, no one disregard you. Amen? Amen. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at The Gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us at 10.30 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are always welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.